You may think you know venture capital, but until you listen to my interview with Paul Naftali from Rampersand, you will be making too many assumptions. This week on Discipline, Paul and I sit down and unpack the mysterious world of VC. We look at what makes VCs invest in founders and certain businesses. We talk valuations, founder mentors, pricing, escape velocity, why failure is a nuanced word, and what seed, series A, and all these rounds actually mean. If you want to understand everything about venture capital, then tune in and listen to this podcast. Paul Naftali, co-founder and managing partner at Rampersand, welcome to Discipline. Were you interested in business as a child? Interested in business? Uh, well, I grew up around business, so I guess so. I don't know how you want to define business. Um, it was part of my environment, and Dad had a successful business career, has a successful business career, and he brought his work home, and we were, we were part of it. Um, that was just part of life, absolutely. I was much more drawn to the creative side. Um, my, I really wanted to be in advertising. I saw that. So you started out in PR and strategic communications. How did you get into that? Well, I started in advertising even before strategic comps. Why and R? Uh, yeah, that's right. I I loved, this is really sad, I loved ads. Like I liked the challenge of them. I liked the entertainment of them, the humour of them. Uh, and I did a marketing degree with just with a pure intent of going into advertising and lasted about 18 months, which was, I think, the shortest amount of time I felt like I could have on my first job CV. Um, I did love my time in advertising, but I was frustrated because the um, the ad agencies of the day, we're talking about the late 90s, were very siloed. You had, you know, account service, which is what I was, and you had the creatives, and you had the strategy, and you had the media... And the account service job was kind of to pass briefs around everyone. You didn't add a lot of value. And uh, and then a friend of mine, Lara Carey, a mutual friend of ours, uh, was in PR. And I didn't know what PR was, but we'd been catching up. And she said, well, if you're frustrated that you don't get to do everything, come over to PR where you get to be everything. Right. I was like, awesome. That was. I said, I don't know what it is. She goes, don't worry, I'll teach you. And that was it. Yeah. And there you go. So you did quite a few years in PR. And then ended up working for a range of companies um, as in PR, but those companies were acquired by other incredible companies. So you had uh, well, Amobi that was acquired by Singtel, uh, Snap2, which was acquired by Facebook, um, and Yaya, which was acquired by Telefonica. I mean, this is an incredible strike rate. Uh, were you lucky or did you seek out these companies? So... Let me unpack that a little bit. So what happened was I had worked for Lara. We actually set up a tech practice here in the late 90s and got into tech and we were doing sort of big tech through to startups and loved it and went over to the UK and um, and was working for strategic comms agency there. Jarja was my client, actually, and I'd helped launch them. They were Austrian-founded, uh, Austrian-founded, Israeli R&D, Irish CEO based in Mountain View, California. Wonderful. It was amazing. And so we were leaving England to bring our, we had a young baby to come back to Melbourne, and they said, oh, well, if you're leaving, come, uh, don't go home, go halfway home, come to California. And so I had a 
great chat with my wife that night. Not and, sure that geography is quite right. But. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly US-centric view of, of, of the globe. Uh, but it was a really exciting offer, and uh, I don't think we were quite ready to settle in Melbourne yet, so moved to California. So that was lucky. I knew them well. I'd been embedded in the company for a number of years before I joined The Leap, and, and my job was, was beyond PR, was head of global marketing. There were about 35 people backed by Sequoia, uh, and I was there as in that role for two years before we sold to Telefonica, and that was early 2010. Um, so the next few companies either were from, uh, well, they were all from introductions from people I had worked with in the States. And so Snap2 was through, they had it, um, Sequoia had invested, Amobi, the CEO of Jarja, had gone over to Amobi and, and, and asked me to do some work in there. So it was by using that network and, People often ask me, and I, don't, I haven't seen your rundown, but how do you make the leap from the sort of PR guy to the marketing guy to the VC? That was that was the rundown. So so and and, and this is sort of how it worked. The, the ability, what what I had sort of learnt through um, luck and then mistakes was how to pick the next gig. Yeah. And so the next gig was all, I built up my own set of criteria around. You know, typically, when the company would exit, so Snap2 was bought by Facebook. Facebook says. We don't need you know, a new marketing guy to We've join our one. team, yeah. so on you go. And and um, so each time that would happen was an opportunity to then look at the sort of spectrum of opportunities and build my own frameworks for making decisions. And so those frameworks were a combination of did I believe that the market made sense and what they were doing was solving a genuine problem? Did I care about it? Were they founders that I felt had a quality chance of making it? And could I have a material impact so on So you were chance? already thinking with a critical assessment of uh, some of the factors that uh, a VC would look at when they look at a business? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, well, as it turns out, not deliberately at the time, but as it turns out... Just intuitively. That was the, the way... You go. Because anyone in that environment is... Time is money, you know, and it's such a cliche, but you're, you're working for you know, reasonable salaries, actually, but really you're working for your equity. Yeah. And so when you work for equity, that's your investment. And, uh, and sometimes you put your own money in alongside that. And so you want to know that if you're going to spend two to five years or even longer with these companies, that the payoff will be there. And so you, you actually are looking at it through an investment lens, even though at the time I didn't sort of separate it that way. That was, that was the decision-making process to be able to say, are they going to be successful? And and sometimes they weren't. And you go, well, what did I get wrong here? And you see, you're refining your thesis the whole time. Um, and, you know, back to the, did I get lucky? I mean, absolutely got lucky. The crowd that I fell into with Jar Jar was an incredible crowd. I didn't really know what Sequoia was at the time. Yeah. So to, to sort of stumble into an environment around that. Uh, they had some amazing other VCs backed by Intel, by Globespan, Venki, who went on to become the, or now the managing partner at Menlo Ventures, so really oh, high, okay. high quality people yeah. who would then provide often a first filter on the next gig as well. So it was partly about developing my own filter, partly about leveraging network and understanding what their filters were and then mashing it all up together. Yeah. I think, uh, did you get a lot of face time with Sequoia though while you were there and these types of uh, VCs to actually get any insights further than your own intuition as to what they were doing? Oh, yeah, we did. They, they were, they were um, I mean, we wouldn't talk to them every day or even every week, but we'd do certain initiatives. Um, their VCs there were very advanced in terms of putting their portfolios together. Um, would, 
you know, one of the things we did with Jar Jar was drive initiative across the rest of the Sequoia portfolio to you know offer services to them. So they were really good. If we had questions, they were on the board, so we'd see them at least once a month coming yeah. through. It was an amazing insight. I, you know, you talk about a vertical learning curve. It was incredible. Yeah, that's. I mean, it so- sounds amazing. And one of the things I've often thought coming from you know the bite-sized piece I've had of Silicon Valley to Australia is that we often tout that we're the next Silicon Valley or we could be that, but we are playing completely different sports here. So how do you then make the jump back to Australia to get into this VC world um, after seeing the absolute pinnacle of um, this in operation? Firstly, I agree with you. We are not building the next Silicon Valley. No one is. Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. Israel, which is the other ecosystem I sort of knew best, is not Silicon Valley. Um, New York isn't. Singapore isn't. You know, nothing is, and we certainly aren't. Um, But what we have to figure out is what are we and how do we feed into that global mesh network? Um, How I made the leap was, so we sold Jar Jar, um, and as I said before, we were on a journey back to Australia. So I was in love with Silicon Valley. It was amazing, but it's not, (coughs) excuse me, not... It's not home? It's not home. We had, you know, two kids under two. It was, you know, really opportunity, just had a payout to, to move back. So so we did that and I was really quite, I'd say, frustrated with what the Australian tech ecosystem had to offer at that point. And, and probably in fairness, there was much more, or unquestionably there was much more here than I had realised. But when you're used to sort of walking down University Ave or Sandy Road or, you know, Castro Street in in, uh, in in Mountain View where startups are in your face, it just wasn't here. And so, so I got that offer to go and join another Sequoia-backed startup back in California and I took it. So while I was working with Snap2 or advising with Amobi, um, or others, I was doing fly-in, fly-out. So my family was in Melbourne and I was going fly-in, fly-out to California. That's a hard road. It was a hard road, but it was in, in some ways it was the best of both worlds. So when I was here, I was really here. I'd, do, I'd get up on you know, Pacific time, so 4 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning and do my work in California. Middle of the day, I was seeing my kids. End of the day, I was often on the phone back to Israel. So it was a weird day, but you know, Lynn would say, my wife would say that I was probably spending more time when I was here in the lives of my children than a lot of my contemporaries were. Yep. Uh, it just meant I was also away a lot. Yes. Uh, and yeah. so, um, you know, it, it sort of worked. But what was, it was, in my mind, probably commercially unsustainable. In my mind, always was this, you know, yeah, I've gotten so lucky in who I've met, in the opportunities I've got and how much I'm learning and what I'm getting back from it. At some point, they're going to wake up and go, who the hell is this Australian <laughs> we're spending a fortune flying him back and forth, you know, six, eight, ten times a year. Surely we can find someone local, and and but there was no sign of that letting up. But it's always, in the, you know, yeah. I think like many VCs, there's a, there's a very healthy dose of paranoia that lives within me. But what was really the frustration was the ecosystem was growing up around uh, Australia, and and, around, and and I was totally oblivious to it. I'm working in California, really happy working in California. Um, and starting to meet Australian founders and, and constantly always interested, and you get calls, you know, people realise you've got some connections to Silicon Valley, and um, between, what I said, 2010, 2013, certainly my network in Australia got a lot better, but also the quality of the people here and their endeavours were getting a lot better. So that's that's when you came back to Australia, 2013, and founded 
Rampersand? So we started in 2013, which was off the back of a real frustration. So two things happened. Firstly, I met Jim Cassidy. Yep. Jim, uh, for context, Jim used to run a division of IBM. He uh, is, is actually Scottish, but had, has an Australian wife, spent a lot of his life in Australia, but also lived in Silicon Valley. He had been across Europe and other parts of the States. And Asia was living in, um, in Paris and was coming uh, back to Australia. So we met through our sisters-in-law, who were best friends. They said, uh, you guys are both in tech. You'll get along. You should meet. We're like, you know, you know maybe, maybe not. Whatever. We'll do it out of obligation. We <laughs> yeah. did. We both had a very similar view of this frustration, which was if you take a founder in you know, Melbourne or Sydney who's got the same experience, the same capability, the same drive, the same insight, the same you know, ambition versus the exact same person in you know, Palo Alto or Tel Aviv, and, and our person here is going to be behind the eight ball. Now, part of that is just the tyranny of distance in a small local market, and the lack of, but part of that is the infrastructure that's around these people in California or Israel yep. in particular. So we're like, if we don't fix that, there's a big problem for Australia. The next generation of wealth is not going to come from digging shit out of the ground and building shit on top of it. Yep. The world has changed, and that's been fantastic. We are a very entrepreneurial country, but we're not well-developed in our technology entrepreneurialism. Yep. So we have to. if we don't build that infrastructure, this Australia that we've all chosen to come back to and raise our kids is no longer. Yep. The second thing, though, is if we get it right, there is a ton of money to be made. Yes. And we're like, well, what, what do we do? And we spent... Probably from late 2012 when we first met to 2013, figuring out what is the answer, how do we structure this? And VC was not our first thought. We knew there had to be some capital. The the, the pinpoint or the, the, the turning point was, you know, there was this sort of one or two week period where I met a bunch of founders who were like, geez, you guys are as, as good as anyone. Um, are you raising money? Are you getting term sheets? What's going on? And they... All of them said, no, there's no money in Australia. I'm going to go straight over to Sand Hill Road. It's easier to raise money over there. It's like, crap. Okay, that's bad. In the same period of time, starting to spend some time with some high net worth family offices, people who are investors in various things, largely because people were starting to assess sort of Israeli technology. It's like, well, what about what's on our doorstep? What about Australian yeah. tech? Yeah. And they all said, nah, there's no good Australian tech. There's no way to make money here. Yeah. And we got, you know, we'll, we'll maybe put into a fund in Silicon Valley or Israel. I'm like, shit. We've got these two parts of the ecosystem cherry ripe, ready to go. How do we connect them? Yep. And Jim and I said, well, you know, ultimately the answer is you've got to have that work experience, the ability to actually assess these companies. Well, we've talked about, we've each developed our own thesis on that. We've got the preparedness and the desire to work with these founders and, and apply what we've done in our commercial career, professional careers to help these companies grow. Uh, and we're prepared to take the capital risk of managing other people's yep. money. So yep. ultimately, that was the, the money was the sort of this, the the thing that was the aligning factor of it. It was actually the big, and that bought you know the ability to find these founders and give them value beyond just time, yep. give them the runway that was necessary. And so that was how the VC came about. Okay, I mean it's a uh, you know very early on in the piece in the building of the Australian tech ecosystem, um, and the the sort of mandate for Rampersand to an extent seems like it's to help address the funding gap for Australia and New Zealand founders. And you've you've had some brilliant investments too, such as Expert360, Sendal. Uh, and VC is an incredibly interesting space that's inextric- inextricably linked to the rise and rise of many startups, in particular tech. Um, so give us in a nutshell, what is VC then? <laughs> 
at its most, I mean, VC's a fun manager. You know, we remove the, ro- the the romance and the narrative. It's about investing in early stage companies, well, investing in tech companies. Um, how to be a good VC, then there's a lot of models over that. So fundamentally yeah. what we are is a fund that uh, makes decisions on investing in tech companies according to the mandate that we've promised our investors. Yep. And the Rampersand model is to say we go in very early, we go into companies that have zero to a million dollars of revenue for our first investment. Uh, we'll write invest in checks of up to a million dollars and then support that company through its early stage uh, and then right through to expansion. So we write checks of between 150K and 5 mil. Yep. Typically, we keep on stretching how big the checks will be. Uh, only in tech companies with founders who have uh, a um, yeah, world's best ambition. We're not looking for Australia's best companies or New Zealand's best companies. Global scale. Glo- ability VC to be the best. scale. It yep. doesn't have to be global day one. Some funds do that. It doesn't have to be... Um, you know, we, we have appetite for uh, you know, B2B enterprise software through to fintech. Typically what our focus is is, is SaaS, fintech, digital marketplaces and AI slash data-driven yep. uh, companies. And, you know, for, for a lot of companies, they, they sort of talk about VC from the outset and say we need to get VC, we need to get VC, we need to get VC. Is it a silver bullet for businesses, then? No. Uh, would you like me to expand on the answer? Yes. <laughs> VC is suitable for a very small percentage of companies. Um, the companies that suit VC are those that, are, that, in order to achieve sort of significant size, they need some kind of what Peter Thiel would call escape velocity. So they need to spend upfront ahead of revenue uh, in order to drive significant growth to create market domination to then um, leverage that reward uh, or reap that reward. Uh, so for most businesses, that's not true. For most businesses, living off customer-driven revenue is a much better way to fund your business. Yeah. Um, you For most founders who don't necessarily have the risk appetite to be you know, making you know, typically these venture back companies you know make losses because they're investing heavily in growth and product. So to make those kind of risky decisions in order to achieve the big outcome, that's not most companies. Yeah, you know, most most companies shouldn't do that. It's much more destructive. They'll probably never grow at the at the um, at the rate that you know the best venture backed businesses do. You know, we talk about companies within our. Your company's growing 100% year on year, and in the let's call the real world, that's incredible. For us, that's a baseline. Yes. So, you know that that's a really strange, you know, profile of a company. And as you said, VCs become you know, high profile. Everyone's got to get VC. Got to get very VC. sexy. What people mean by that is they need access to capital. Yep. Anywhere in the world, there's there's way. What are your options for access to capital? Yeah. One of the things that's happened in Australia the last few years is as banks have stopped lending and VCs have grown, there's been a lot of confusion as to where am I going to access capital from. Uh, and VCs are an asset class that doesn't suit most founders. When it works, it works unbelievably well. The failure rate is there. It's not 
what people look at the outside and go, I'll roll the dice. It's a bit of a punt, invest in 100 companies and one or two pay it all off. It's definitely not the model that works, not in Australia anyway, and I don't think anywhere in the world. Yeah, there is a a prevailing view that that is the model. But there is a failure rate. Yeah. If if you're not, if you, we in our, you know, it's, so anyone in investing will talk about pricing risk. Now, this is a high-risk environment. We have to understand what that means. And the returns have to be there in order to offset the losses. And therefore, you need the big returns. And therefore, you can take the risks on the losses. Uh, and you have to risk those losses in order to get the big returns. So it becomes this sort of self, you know, it's like the snake that eats its own tail. It just keeps on going round and round and round. Yeah. Um, and you have to understand that. And if you're a business, there's this awful, awful expression called um, lifestyle business. Yeah. And most people I know have built and either have exited or continue to run lifestyle businesses and they are unbelievable. I, they are the people I admire as much as anyone. They are most of our investors. That is most of the wealth that's been created in Australia yep. is through what we would, you know, what is sometimes called lifestyle business. These are businesses that are you know, worth 50 to $100 million. They're cash flow positive. Yep. People living off the profits. They're amazing businesses. Yep. Um, they're not necessarily, depending on your model, venture-backable businesses, but they're amazing businesses. And in most cases, that's what people are looking to build. I mean, people don't often see then the other side of the coin because if you've got a fund and you're expected to make returns, you've got a huge amount of pressure to back your founders. And if you know any VC, uh, not Rampersand in particular, is having a, a bad run of outs with investments... I mean, does that put unnecessary pressure on the founder that has got VC funds because the VC is under pressure to make a return or to have a win? Well, I think the found and the, the question of pressure on founders, there is immense pressure on founders. A lot of it from themselves is the kind of people who start companies and want to build successful businesses are very driven right. individuals. Uh now, I'll often say if, if there is such a thing as a well-rounded personality, startup founders aren't it. Um, it's not normal to be hugely successful, and so you know, hugely successful people aren't normal. Yeah. Uh, and so there is growing, thankfully growing recognition of the mental health challenges through the startup journey. We actually do a lot of work around around that, both in, in sort of through the screening processes and also post-investment in, more particularly. Uh, it's tough. Our job as the VCs is not to put pressure on these companies. Our job as the VCs is to understand the human element of what drives individuals. It's like a footy coach. You know, sometimes some players perform when the coach yells and screams and puts them on edge. Some players perform when the coach wraps their arms around them, gives them a hug and tells them everything's all right. Yep. And... Our job is to understand that. In fact, our job is largely to protect the founders and stay the hell out of their way unless there's something we can do to add value. Yep. Let's not overstate our role. We will invest you know, anywhere from 5 to 20% of the company. We're minority owners. Founders own their own company. They're in charge of their own destiny. We're there to help. And sometimes helping is just clear the path. Sometimes helping is give them a hug. Yep. Sometimes helping is saying, hey, I've been in this situation 20 times before. Here's how it's played out in my experience. Let's try and avoid some of the negative yes, pathways yeah. there, and here's some alternative ways of thinking about it. So help comes in all kinds of formats. The pressure to perform is there full stop from the get-go. If we don't recognise it, then you know they're probably not a venture-backable business. Yep. So it doesn't come... Thankfully, I'm not in an environment where we've had stacking up losses. Um, I think if you're in an environment where you've got that, but you've also got the wins 
and your investors understand the risk of the investment that they've made. Jeez, it would, I would hate to think that any VC is passing that in their LP or investor pressure onto their founders. That seems like a disastrous environment to be yep. in. Uh, I haven't seen it happening, not in Australia. Um, maybe it does. I'm, I'm unaware of it. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen uh, I've seen the TV show Silicon Valley. I'm sure plenty of the listeners have, and uh, you know that's that's kind of the portrayal of it. So it's good to hear that uh, you know you're you're guiding the path, turning on the lights rather than uh, cracking the whip. Well, I think I mean, transparency is everything, um, together with alignment. Okay, so if we're going into a company and we have this joint vision that we think this can be an X billion dollar, X hundred million dollar. X dominant, whatever the metric you're going after, and you see a vision as the founder, you see a vision for your company. We'll back her, back him into that company if we believe in it. Yeah, and it might be that we don't see anything wrong with that proposition. We just don't think that's what the world needs or what the pathway is going to be. So we're misaligned from the get go. If your investors, usually there's more than one, are aligned with the founder and their vision, are aligned in the way that they're going to communicate through that and where the risks might be and how you're going to mitigate those risks and you're communicating throughout that process, there should be no transferal of pressure. Yep. You know, we will say to our investors, understand what this space is. We will do everything we possibly can through our experience, through our filtering, through our networks, through our time to de-risk this as much as possible. We think we give our companies an unfair chance of success just by being in the Rampersand portfolio. Yep. Partly because people recognise that they're backed by a credible VC, partly because the practical things we'll do to support them. But we won't get it right the whole time. It's risky. It's we, a bottom line. It is risky. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what about the founders then? I mean, you've said a minute ago they are unusual people, <laughs> probably... Ranging from obsessive compulsive ADHD, brilliant minds. Uh, how do you back these unusual people? What are you looking for? What's the what's the twinkle or the spark? <laughs> Look, this is the thing we we all anyone in my industry spends their entire life trying to figure out uh, and refine the model. There are lots of signs when you're going in pre-revenue, in particular, and you're really backing a you know, human and their thesis. Then you know, it is much about that sort of human psychology and and um, I think we time teaches a lot of things. We're getting better at doing that. We've started doing this for some time. These people, let me generalise, and, and how it manifests is really different. We've got 22 companies in the portfolio, you know, over 40 founders, uh, and they're all different. They're all unique and they're all incredible and they're inspiring and they're challenging and uh, and, and, and really you know, genuinely special people. Um, they are all super ambitious, they are all super competitive, they are all paranoid and optimistic in the same breath, and they have deep passion. That set of, uh, what are they, traits, manifest really differently in different people. And so one of our challenges is trying to understand the inner workings of an individual, and you never do. It's one of the things I think is really hard about VC, and particularly for founders who are looking to raise VC, you're trying to optimise for two things. You're trying to optimise for having the best investors on the best terms, and it can be really hard to do that quickly. Yeah. Uh, and because best investors means a personal relationship. Yeah. And so typically in these very early stage businesses, the people who are responsible for raising the money are also the people who are responsible for driving the business forward. 
So at exactly the time when you want your numbers going, as we say, up and to the right, is the time when the people who are driving you know, those results are out of the business raising money. So you go, like, I've got to do this quickly. Don't waste my time. Yeah. I want to get back into business. But you're making a decision that could impact your life for 10, 15 years. Yeah. You've got to, you know, how do you do that quickly? Now, yeah. we try and optimise for speed as much as possible, speed in developing relationships and being transparent. So a lot of you know, talking to you, the blog post we'll put out, the seminars we'll do, the workshops, the openness is around saying, you should know what we stand for before you... Open and, the door. Uh, before you've even met. Yep. We want to meet these companies early, even potentially before they're investable, not to take up their time, but as we can see them operate. And then when it becomes time to open a round or you know, we might trigger a round, that's really easy. That's when it's easy to put a little bit of time into building relationships over time, then it becomes quick. Yeah. Uh, and optimising for getting the best investors is much more important than keeping that yeah. time short, but it's difficult. I can say, you know, firsthand on, on many occasions that raising money is one of the most challenging things as an entrepreneur. It's uh, one of the most difficult things to do because there's so many factors. As you say, you're balancing the equity, the amount of money, you want to keep the business running. It is just as a founder, it's just so difficult. The founder is the chief finance officer, the chief business strategist, the chief salesperson, the chief product officer, and the head of PR. Yeah. All at the same time, and that's what your investors you know, are backing is your ability to actually understand all that. So it's it's complex. What about then uh, founder comes in, really like it, and they put a ridiculous price on the business? I mean, how, how do you marry up a founder pricing a business and you wanting to uh, buy in and accelerate a business? Price is, you say ridiculous price, and sort of ridiculous price is in the eye of the beholder. Um, it's perceiving value versus risk, uh, and so there are times you go, well, what is your what is your model for pricing? Every VC has got their own models, and, and it matches to their thesis. Um, I'll generally say to a founder, uh, you've got to have a sense of what dilution you're prepared to accept, uh, and then and, and what value you're looking for uh, beyond cash. How what you can achieve with that cash, and valuation will sort of take care of itself. Yeah. Um, the the it's it's very um, value is what someone's prepared to pay, or the price is what someone's prepared to pay. So yeah. What valuation you're going to get is what. So it's not really to some extent for the founder to set that. You know, we have founders who we meet all the time say, "Well, this business is we're raising it twenty million dollars," and we'll sort of say cheekily, "Says who? <laughs> um, you know, because it's, you're raising it twenty million dollars." When someone's prepared to it's raise the twenty million dollars, the market says what the market says, and look, and this market's interesting. This market's quite thin. Is you know, so finding a you're going to go on a journey. If you're going VC, it's probably not the only money you'll raise. So it's always easiest for us and for the founder to do a quick investment, or even to do an let's call it say an effective investment process where. There is a very clear understanding from the founder, or at least a hypothesis that says, this is what I want to achieve over the next period of time. These are the units of progress we want to make. This is what we think it's going to take to get there in terms of time, in terms of resources. And that's the first, you know, 10 steps. And we know if we take 10,000 steps where we want to end up. So the first 10 steps are clear. The 1,000-step view or 10,000-step view is clear. And everything from sort of ten to ten thousand is, is variously fuzzy, but you've got that notion of where you want to get to and what it might look like. And then you can have a discussion: Are those units of progress 
the right units of progress from our perspective, they match up with how our experience of building successful businesses. Does then the funding build in enough contingency to be able to do that? Yep. And does it therefore allow for an appropriate level of dilution for the founders? One of the biggest challenges, and I know a lot of people listening to this are founders who are thinking about going on this journey, There's there is huge tension. We don't have the answer. We're continuing trying to find the answer to over-diluting founders early. Yep. So we will too often see companies that are at that post-seed, pre-series A stage. They've got a bit of revenue, not a lot. It's starting to look repeatable. Customers are happy. We have fantastic. Founders got a great vision, understand what the world looks like, really driven, great solution to a big problem, and they own 50% of their company. Yeah. Holy crap. Now, 50%, you go, oh, well, they're in control. Well, they're not really because they've got people who have taken too much control of their company from a cap table perspective, rights perspective, and we we won't uh, invest in those circumstances. So we're looking at how do you remedy that Put in ESOPs, put in founder kickers. Um, there's no real easy way to do it. Yeah. You know, well, we don't blame the angels who have invested ahead of us because those angels really do want the best for the company. They're prepared to back the company when no one else is prepared to back yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they are so yeah, they are there. And you know what? Out of naivety, they probably underfunded it and wanted to do a good deal. They didn't want to overpay, and then it took two rounds or three rounds, not one. And suddenly the founders lost half their company before they're really on the track to growth. And so just there is a tension between getting money to survive when no one else is prepared to fund you and then cutting off the um, potential future upside uh, by over-diluting it. Taking out the founders' energy and want to put everything into it when they've lost... Yep. And so what we'll, 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 yeah, typically... So if you're, if, yeah, if you're a founder looking at this and looking at Angel, you don't have to drive the hard bargain in terms of saying, oh, my business is worth much more than you think it's much worth. It's a, it, than you think it's worth. It's about saying, this is the kind of journey I'm going to be on. This is the first round, uh, potentially the second round. If I'm going, you know, we're going to go and raise VC money, play them this podcast, say you know, most VCs won't invest in a company where the founders are overly diluted by seed series A, even Series B. So if we want to actually have access to capital ongoing, we have to make sure the cap table's in decent shape. And that leads me to a question about the seed Series A, Series B rounds. I mean, to me, these phrases seem a bit arbitrary. Um, how do I know where I fit? What, what, what does it all mean? I mean, there's plenty of articles people can read about that, but are these actually arbitrary statements or are they meaningful? Oh, they're somewhere in between. Um <laughs> the, you know, what is a series eight? So there's, there's sort of classically what do we think they mean and then what happens in reality. So they're a, they're a signpost of progress. You know, you might have, you know, historically they come from, you know, naming rounds. It's like Roman numerals. You go through the alphabet. Uh, but you might have a seed, a post-seed, a seed bridge, a series A, an A+, plus, an seed, A bridge. Seeds, it, right issue. Yeah, yeah. so... so you know, you're really trying to group what are the what are the units of progress. Typically, what we're saying is, you know, angel is or pre-seed is pre-product. Seed is sort of product without much revenue or any revenue. Series A, you've got you know probably six figures, six zeros on your revenue, and it goes on from there. Okay. It means different things in Australia than it does to the US. Each ecosystem will start to divide it. You know, you're seeing Series A's in the states without revenue, for example. Yep. So it's, it's shifting. It's contextual. Yeah. It's contextual, but it's trying to sort of signpost where you're up to in your business progress 
but it's using the number of rounds that you've raised to get there. So I, I would think about it more if you're trying to name a round, don't worry too much about it, but if you're trying to use it as a sing- signal of where you're up to. Yeah, what you've, what you've achieved. What is progress, the, yeah. What's interesting, I think, to look at as well, I mean, obviously you've had a few uh, investments that haven't gone the way you'd hoped. Um, what have you learned from any of those investments? I mean, people will call them failures, but... But there's, there's always learnings, you know, I think we talk about this a lot. Failure in Australia is really you, 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 you sort of use the word and indicate that yeah, it is a nuanced word. Um, how do we think about failure? You go, oh, well, the US they celebrate failure and they tolerate it, and it's fantastic. Yeah, well, cele- you know, celebrating failure, recognizing the value that can come from failure, that's really good. S- seeking failure, that's not so good. <laughs> you know, so. We've got to put failure in its context. I think we're getting much better in Australia at recognising the value of failure. Yeah. We really quite like backing second-time founders where the first go hasn't worked because the lessons that come from that, the scar tissue that builds up from that, is really, really valuable. Yeah, through through our own journeys, things that haven't worked tend to teach you a lot more than things that have. It's um, If you uh, listen to uh, episode two of Discipline with Jason Ellenport, we had a very similar discussion about uh, failure and... Uh, the different ecosystems and how they treat failure, whereas you say America and even Israel, people are very happy to back a, a second-time founder because I like to think of it as, well, this time around they won't be making the mistakes with my dough. They'll be making the, they've already made those mistakes. So, yeah. and I think the definition of entrepreneur has changed. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, entrepreneur was a crook in Australia and we all thought of skates and bonds and these kind of So they failed badly because they were you know, criminals. Failure here is, is you know, the, the, what are the core root of it? You know, businesses fail because they run out of money. Um, was the problem they were trying to solve not there? Did that, you know, when we're back in these companies, we think that the problem's out there. You try and do what you can to validate. Did the market just not emerge? Yep. Maybe Happened. that's happened, and we've had that happen before to us. Uh, did, their, did the problem emerge, but their solution was no good? And that's a listening failure. You know, if you're not able to iterate quickly in response to what the market is actually telling you it needs, that's that's actually a human behavioural failure from within, failure. The, within the organisation. Yeah. Um, did they mismanage capital failure of operations? Did they actually mismanage people? Typically, I think what we forget, all, these are all people problems. Every single one of them are people problems. So what, did, what, what, what went wrong in terms of either uh, the, the, uh, the management of the company or the advisory around the company... Uh, operations focused so learning in each case why that thing's gone wrong can be applied to the next thing yep. so you know sometimes things fail because founders you talk about pressure before to holding on too tight not distributing responsibility not getting best yep. people what they're best at so it meant that the business was sub-optimized moved too slowly and respond to a rapidly emerging market so they got overtaken yeah so understanding each of the lessons that comes what we what we will tolerate uh, is market failure. Yeah. So market. You know, timing is actually proven over longitudinal studies in VC to be the most important thing in whether your investment worked or not. Very true. Did, were you at the right time with the right proposition? And it's really hard to predict that. But if you're not prepared to take that risk and get something wrong, then you're going to get the winner. Someone else will get the winner. Yep. So so we we will make that mistake and we put that into the basket of sort of tolerable mistake, even though. We'll do everything we can to try and de-risk that. 
everything else is then a human sort of management challenge and we try and de-risk that through sort of assessing and working with the founders pre and post investment yeah. to put that sort of governance in place but you'll just you know things will go wrong i've picked up on a couple of things there i mean you've, you've talked about delegation you've talked about holding on too tight um there must be times then in your own sort of delegation where you've given the money you've given control to the founder but you've sat there and thought jesus i can i can do a much better job here um I could jump in here. On what do you do if that if you ever? Two of the hab it doesn't happen post. Yeah, it doesn't happen in an investment. Yeah, typically, look, there, there there is no one or two paths to VC. You know, you can be an operator. So Jim and I were never founders. You know, we were people who were you know, in my case, sort of first five employee type of person who loved working with the founders and really you know, admired, respected, was jealous of their ability to create these things and and work with them. None of us have ever got a view of replacing the founder either with ourselves or yeah. someone else. What you just described hasn't certainly hasn't happened in my experience and haven't observed it happening here. What the danger is, though, when you've been an operator is when a company comes and you meet a company and they're pitching and you start to think what you would do with it if you're working there and when you can get caught up in your own kind of plan for that company, whereas the founder's got a very different plan and you can misread what the founder's right. okay. going yep. to go with that journey they're going to go on. Yep. And that's where you can get sort of misalignment it's never to sort of jump in and do it. It's to say, you've got to peel yourself back. It's yep. not about what we would do. We're backing people who see a future that we haven't yet seen, that we believe in their ability to, for them to make it true. Yep. Uh, and so we're backing them to do that, and our job is to help clear the way for them to do it. There's not time where... I never go, I could run this company better than you. Yep. No, we're backing people who can do that. Yep. There are things within that job that we've got more experience in. So I, last night I was writing a press release for one of our companies. Yeah, these guys never written a press release. Why would they have? I've done it for years, a thousand times. Yep. So I can do in twenty minutes what you know. That's easy. So it's not doing their job. It's it's supplementing their it's job with things them. where we've got depth yeah. of experience. So um, it's it, it is really it is collaborative. It is um, about supporting the founders, the backing the founders to run their own company. And you uh, you haven't read the rundown sheet, but you've touched on something that I wanted to get into next, which is then mentorship. Do you help founders find that headspace where they can get advice from not only yourselves but other advisory types around the business that can really help them as individuals and that business grow? Yeah, I, I think more than anything else, that's that's the job of a great founder and that's the job of a good investor. Founders uh, who succeed tend to be very good at bringing people around them who want to help them. Uh and leveraging their that the yeah the, leveraging people around them with experiences they don't have or, or connections and they don't have to drive that business forward. It's a it is a key job of the founder. Um, they're gonna if they're gonna be successful, they're gonna build a company. And sometimes we've had experiences where uh, you know, a founder might have the best insight into the problem and a great you know product architecture and vision for it, but. Uh, haven't invested because we think they haven't got a willingness or desire or an ability to bring people around them on that journey. Yep. This is this is a this is yeah. People talk about being a founder is a lonely journey, and it is, but it's not alone. You know, it's it's you've got to build an organisation around you, and so the best founders tend to be really good at doing that themselves, and we get to accelerate that by adding another layer of network and experience around them, whether that's Jim, myself, Hugh Williams, our new partner who ran Google Maps. Yep. Um, it's our network, where some of our investors are 
extraordinary entrepreneurs themselves uh, and our networks here in, in the US. Being able to open those doors as much as anything else and for the founders to be able to win the hearts and minds of people and extract knowledge. So one thing they're really good at is getting people to want to help them. The yeah. other thing they're really good at is huge curiosity, learning, processing lots of information and making decisions quickly. So yeah. mentorship, I think, is just fundamentally critical to everyone's journey. Yep. Uh, we invested in a company called Mentor Loop. Uh, it is software to help companies manage mentorship programs because it's one of the key driving factors in recruitment and retention. Yep. Same for our business. Okay. No, it's good. What about yourself then? Uh, how do you keep motivated? How do you keep yourself uh, fresh and uh, full of new ideas, finger on the pulse of what the global trends are and where uh, opportunities are emerging? Oh, um, I think of myself as having some... You know, one of the, the best job in the world and really lucky. I get to spend my time with people who are creating a future um, that's really inspiring. So on the one hand, the, all the founders we back are really inspiring and, and keep fresh in new frontiers. On the other hand, all of our investors who I spend time with are all you know, entrepreneurial and exciting and we've got something to learn from them. And then I've got mentors beyond those two groups here in Australia or in the States uh, and other and other jurisdictions who are you know, significantly more experienced than I am who I draw upon. So um, I think from the curiosity to continue to learn, and this is a very humbling job, we're making decisions about people and we make a lot of mistakes. Right? So I think if we think we've got this nailed, then we're in a real trouble. The world changes too quickly. The technologies that we're investing in change too quickly. The growth patterns around these companies change very quickly. We've got to know that in our corner of the world in Australia, we're seeing companies that are going to be competing with companies from you know, Israel, Silicon Valley, New York, India, Singapore, Germany. Yep. You know, we are working in a global competitive yep. environment. So we are constantly market scanning at the same time. And, and because we are almost a repository of ideas uh, and you, then you're assessing those ideas against what's going on in the world, you can never think that you know it all. Yep. Um, Quick fire round. Who is your favourite comedian? Uh, I'm listening. Uh, I love the English comedians. I'm listening to um, Mickey Flanagan at the moment. Tennis player. Pat Cash. Favourite band? Uh, Pearl Jam. Uh, fa- product of the 90s. Favourite artist? Um, goodness me. Uh, I have a favourite artist. Ad Nate. Most memorable smell? Most memorable smell? Bloody hell. I've got some bad memories of some <laughs> boys' road trips. Uh, uh, do you know what? If the, the, the smell, this is really going to sound sucky. Uh, I'll always remember the smell of my kids as babies. Right. Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? Uh, Wozniak. Interesting. Um, what's next for Paul Naftali and your journey? Uh, Rampersand's an evolving beast. I think if I'm lucky enough to, to be doing this for the next 50 years, that's what I'll do. Excellent. Paul, thank you very much for being on Discipline. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me.